0: Our text is going to be only verse 18, so what I'd like to do is read the text then ask uh, Jack, if he would, to ask the blessing on the reading, and then we'll move along. Ephesians 5, verse 18 says, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Jack, would you? Amen. What it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit is potentially one of the most controversial and misconstrued teachings of the New Testament today. H.B. Charles has said, quote, ask any Christian what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The answer may reflect ignorance. Fear, speculation, fanaticism, or indifference. Why is there so much confusion about spirit infilling? Two reasons. No teaching and wrong teaching. Charismatic Pentecostals have so misconstrued and misapplied this teaching that many groups of conservative Christians are frankly afraid to even talk about what our relationship is with the Holy Spirit, lest by admitting that we need to be filled with the Spirit, we'll end up dancing down church aisles, muttering strange gibberish, or or maybe even expressing an enthusiastic amen with other people around during corporate worship service. Since it has become a relatively scary subject, we seldom speak of being filled with the Spirit ourselves, and this is to our detriment. This is something we need to embrace. While we're only going to look in depth at verse 18 this morning, I want you to know with certainty, it does not stand alone, right? Do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, is only one more layer of Paul's continuing argument from verse 8 where he's talking about walk as children of light and in verse 15 where he says walk circumspectly or walk as wise people do Paul is in reality continuing his list of comparisons by contrast you can look at verse 8 you were in darkness but now live as children of light or the verses just before this verse 15 don't be Foolish, but be wise. Verse 16, don't waste time. Redeem the time. And verse 17, don't be unwise. Instead, understand what the Lord's will is. And now, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a comparison he's making between being drunk and being Spirit-filled. But that comparison is one that is mostly a comparison of contrast. They are opposites of each other in many ways. There are similarities, which we'll try to note as we go along. But the greatest comparison is one of contrast, specifically what each of these produces. So, for example, drunkenness, Paul says in verse 18, drunkenness produces excess. Excess means wastefulness or or recklessness. Other translations use the word dissipation or debauchery. Maybe it's best understood by the way Jesus himself used this word. He uses this word in the story of the prodigal son who went out and wasted his inheritance with, quote, riotous living. Drunkenness produces a loss of sense, a loss of... Control, it it produces a riotousness, wastefulness, reckless actions. On the contrary, what's the Holy Spirit produce? Well, up in verse 9, Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is goodness and righteousness and truth. That's not a comprehensive list, but what the Spirit produces is much different than what drunkenness produces. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and temperance, or self-control. Think about that, self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Excess and loss of control is a product of drunkenness. This is an important truth for us to make a practical application of today in a couple of ways. First off, it's evident that drunkenness is a sin. It is described clearly as sin in scripture because it produces a loss of the kind of self-control that exemplifies uh, a righteous life. But second, it also teaches us that being spirit-filled is not going to produce the actions that look exactly the same as if you were drunk. So, when some charismatic Pentecostal says that they're under the control of the Spirit, which has caused them to lose control and dance down the aisles and jump over pews and break out into nonsensical gibberish, you can be assured assured that is not the influence of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit of God produces self-control. The Christians in Ephesus, as well as Christians today, need to live under the influence. Not under the influence of alcohol, but under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. So we're going to look at this text this morning just in those two simple thoughts. What is a Christian's relationship to alcohol? And what is a Christian's relationship to the Holy Spirit? So first off, what's a Christian's relationship to alcohol? Let's recognize a couple of things about the text we've got this morning. First off, we are only focusing on a small part of a large sentence. Right? This sentence starts in verse 18, but it's continuous all the way through verse 21. I'm breaking it up a bit, because I think the issue of being filled with the Spirit is important, and it just needs our attention. Second we can get so focused on the question of what spirit filling is that we ignore how Paul begins this sentence. It is not his primary purpose. Paul's primary purpose here is clearly to stress being filled with the spirit. So it's not his primary purpose to talk about alcohol, but he does make a clear and simple command for Christians. Do not be drunk with wine. The simplicity and clarity of that statement should not be ignored. Drunkenness is a sin. It must be avoided. It's, this is a, a danger for all Christians, but it is especially tempting, depending on what society you live in, how, how it relates to alcohol. You already know the, the city of Ephesus was sort of overshadowed by that temple of Artemis that was just outside of the city proper. There was, if there was any pagan rival in Ephesus to the goddess Artemis, it would be the god known as Dionysus or sometimes as Bacchus who is the god of wine. Getting intoxicated was a means of seeking the inspiration of Bacchus according to the Ephesians. And that inspiration would lead to all kinds of riotous excess. This is more particularly particularly a concern for the church at Ephesus than most places. We've we've noted in the past that Paul's letter to Ephesus mirrors, right? It's it's got a, a striking similarity to his letter to the Colossians. But in the parallel passage to the Colossians, which we'll look at in a few minutes... There's no warning given there about drunkenness. Not because it wasn't equally sinful for the Colossians, but just because I don't think it was equally as prevalent for the Colossians. So I think it's safe to say that our society is more like Ephesus than Colossae. According to the National Institute of Healthcare survey, about 80% of Americans identify themselves as using alcohol, and they start their survey at the age of 12. It's been said that alcohol is the only mind-altering drug our society judges you for not using. We need to be clear and biblical about this issue. The concern is not about the use of alcohol, it is about the abuse of of alcohol now I want you to hear me and stick with me until I'm done so you've heard me right you can you can get upset with me and say I'm all wrong but make sure you know what I'm saying first the Bible does not forbid the use of alcoholic beverages it's not my purpose this morning to go through all of scripture and try to prove drinking alcohol is permitted I think that would actually be counterproductive but we could do that If you need to have that discussion, I'll be glad to sit down and talk with you about it. But what is prohibited in Scripture, clearly and repeatedly, is not the use of alcohol, but the abuse of alcohol, which leads to drunkenness. Being under the influence of alcohol is plainly condemned in Scripture in addition to our text, which says do not be drunk with wine, Paul also includes drunkenness on some of his infamous lists of sin in like Romans 13 and Galatians 5. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 4.3 where he lists essentially drunkenness and drinking parties as, uh, with other sins which he calls forbidden and lawless idolatry. The book of Proverbs speaks to this. Proverbs 23 verses 29 and 30 asks who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaints, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes. It's those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says wine is a mocker. And strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Getting drunk is sinful because it involves a loss of self-control, a loss of your mental faculties. In our society, the one thing we won't tolerate in this regard is drinking and driving, but I assure you that... Drunkenness presents a danger to yourself and to others, even if you're not behind the wheel of a car when it's happening. Not only do you become more of a danger to yourself with the way that you act, potentially you are a danger to others through the choices you make, and you are also in more danger from others. There is no shortage of stories that... Have young men waking up from a drunken stupor and finding themselves robbed or young women finally coming to their senses to find they've been raped while passed out drunk. That loss of control and the consequences of it is why getting drunk is a sin. And now, I'm certain some of you are upset that I've said drinking alcohol isn't itself a sin. Only drunkenness is. And there are others very likely saying, well, if drunkenness is a sin, I just need to be sure not to cross the line. I I can drink, I just need to not get drunk. And that's fine if you can do it. But anytime I get asked where the line is, my standard response is to ask, why do you want to know where the line is? Is it so that you don't cross it or so that you can get as close to it as you can? My father had a favorite sermon illustration about this kind of question. How close can you get to sin without committing sin? He, he said, imagine three guys are brought in on a job interview to drive a, a semi-truck. And the boss explains, this is going to require, you are going to end up taking dangerous highways where the, the roads are narrow and the, the turns are sharp and the cliffs are steep." How close can you get to the edge without going off the edge? And the first driver says, well, I can get my tires right up to the edge of that road. The second driver, wanting to be more uh, uh, impressive, says, well, you know, those semi-trailers actually have two tires on each side. I'm so good, I can get one tire hanging off the edge without going off. And the third driver simply said, I don't know how close I can get. I mean, I'm a good driver, but I've always thought getting as close to the edge as you can is dangerous and stupid. Wisdom dictates you don't go into any endeavor with a plan of getting as close to danger as you can. It's for this reason that the Bible does prohibit all drinking for some people. In Proverbs 31, it describes that kings are not to be partaking in alcohol because it might alter their judgment in important matters. In Leviticus 10, priests were prohibited from drinking because it would uh, make sure that they were completely clear-minded in their service to the Lord. Um, Those who wanted to set themselves apart in service for God could take a Nazarite vow, and part of that Nazarite vow was to Uh, be completely abstaining from alcoholic drinks. So, I hope you're still listening. While Scripture does not absolutely prohibit drinking alcohol, it does do two other things. First, it declares the abuse of alcohol, getting drunk, as sinful. Second, it offers complete abstinence from alcohol as a clear option to honor God. So ultimately, the use of alcohol is an area of what we call Christian liberty. But as with all things with liberty, you're encouraged to wisely and selflessly consider the alternatives and consequences. And for those who may have concluded, well, if I can drink alcohol, I will drink alcohol. Let me just give you a couple more thoughts. Those things that you are allowed to do are not always helpful to do this is what paul famously says in 1 corinthians 6 12 but many times we can only quote the first part of that verse first corinthians 6 12 paul writes all things are lawful to me but all things are not expedient." right and then he also continues all things are lawful for me but i will not be brought under the power of any So what he's saying here is just because you can doesn't mean that all things are expedient, that all things are helpful. And in those things that you can do, you don't want those things that you choose to do to start to have control over you, to have power over you. So just because you can drink doesn't mean it will be helpful. And just because you can drink doesn't eliminate the potential that it could be harmful. In these areas of liberty, Paul says, you you can find yourself under the power of those things that you choose to do. Literally, that means to be mastered by those things. And as a Christian, you have one master that you're called to serve, the Lord Jesus. And you need to be careful not to become preoccupied with things that have the potential to dominate your life and become other influences over you alcohol is an example of this but it's by far not the only example sex is another example sex is not prohibited in scripture but it is limited to a context that honors god right it's it's limited in marriage between a man and a woman it's good, it should be good, but it's also abused if it is done at the wrong time, in the wrong way, with the wrong people. Similarly, drinking alcohol is not prohibited, but it's using it at the wrong time, with the wrong people, in the wrong way, that's ultimately destructive. Just as with the misuse of sex, the misuse of alcohol can be destructive to yourself and to others and it's destructive to your relationship with the Lord. Isn't that evident in the rest of Paul's big sentence here? Remember, this goes all the way down through verse 21. And in the rest of this sentence, Paul describes the kind of worship that happens under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And being under the influence of alcohol, or or let me just add, any other mind-altering chemical or drug, does not enhance worship, it destroys it. That's why this comparison by contrast works so well here for what Paul's saying. This contrast between drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit is fitting because of what it does to our relationship with God in the process of being influenced by these things. I like what John Piper had to say here. Let me give you, it's kind of a long quote, but it's good. Well, there are people who can't begin to whistle a happy tune or sing a song at work because they are so tense and anxious about life. But later in the evening at the tavern with a few drinks under their belt, they can put their arms around each other and sing and laugh. All of us long to be carefree, uninhibited, happy. And the mounting tragedy of our day, as in Paul's, is that increasing numbers of people, even Christians, believe the only way they can find this childlike freedom is by drugging themselves with alcohol or other mind menders. Such behavior dishonors God. And so Paul says, there's a better way to cope with the evil days. Be filled with the Spirit and stay filled with the Spirit. And you'll know the unmatched joy that sings and makes melody to the Lord. So whatever it is about alcohol that draws you to it, that you want to find some solace in being under the influence of alcohol, if you would just submit yourself to being under the influence of the Holy Spirit, you would find that it's better, right? In the greater context of this passage, right, Paul has said the days are evil, but when you Find yourself surrounded by evil days when you're suffering from disappointment or discouragement, when you're so filled with anxiety about the immediate future or the distant future, you feel like you need relief. Do not turn to alcohol and drunkenness for comfort. Turn to the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit that remains in you is able to give you more solace than any empty promises of temporary peace you find by abusing alcohol so that's a christian's relationship to alcohol let's talk about the christian's relationship with the spirit when paul writes here be filled with the spirit we need to be clear that this is a command not an option whether or not you drink alcohol is an option getting drunk is not an option it's a command Don't do that, right? But being filled with the Spirit is also a command. You must do it. In fact, because the nature of this command, not living under the influence of the Spirit is just as much a sin as living under the influence of alcohol. Because this is important, we're going to deal with verses 19 through 21 later in more detail, probably next week, but... There are, there are explanations of what it means, what it looks like to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Today, we we need to spend the rest of our time sort of defining what it is to be filled with the Spirit, what that even means, because there's so many strange ideas about this, let's start by being clear with what being filled with the Spirit is not, what it does not mean. First, it is not the same thing as being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Every believer becomes a disciple of Jesus by being brought to life by the Holy Spirit At which point they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who never leaves. Paul says clearly in Romans 8 verse 9 that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Every believer has the Holy Spirit residing inside of them. The difference between being indwelled by the Holy Spirit and being filled by the Holy Spirit could be Described as the difference between saying, well, there's water in that glass or that glass is filled with water. Every believer is indwelled. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. This is a question of how much influence that Spirit has in every portion of your life. Are you filled in your life with the Spirit? Second, being filled with the Spirit is not the same as being filled baptized by the holy spirit the word baptized sometimes we get in trouble because we take a word and we try to give it all the theological connections and just miss the common meaning of the word to be baptized means to be immersed right we're never commanded to be baptized by the holy spirit in fact the holy spirit does not baptize anyone the limited times where that word baptized is used in conjunction with the Holy Spirit is describing the Spirit as the element of baptism. So, just like if we brought someone to the baptistry and we baptized them in water, they would be immersed in water. The description in the Bible of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised his church that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That is, they would be immersed in the Holy Spirit. That happened at the day of Pentecost. You can go back to the story in Acts where the church is in the upper room and as they're worshiping, the Holy Spirit fills the room at which point they are literally and simply immersed with the Holy Spirit. That's something that happened to the Lord's Church that day, signifying God's approval of the congregation as the place to be worshipped, but it's not repeated today, and we're not told to seek to be baptized in the Holy Spirit today. That's not what Paul's talking about here. (coughs) Third, being filled with the Spirit is not some emotional experience that elevates you to a higher plane of Christian life. Charismatics sometimes refer to this as getting the the second blessing or the second portion of the Holy Spirit. We have no biblical examples of someone getting the second blessing of the Holy Spirit and jumping church pews and shouting unintelligible nonsense or getting down and barking like a dog, nor Do we see people getting what they'll call sometimes slain in the Spirit, which is passing out and falling over backwards? In fact, the rest of verses 19 through 21 is clear that Paul's idea of being filled with the Spirit includes a kind of worshipful self-control. Fourth, being filled with the Spirit is not for a select few individuals. The command here is for all saints at Ephesus to avoid being under the influence of alcohol and instead live their lives under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. If we just continue reading, the letter explains what a spirit filled life looks like in verse 19. It affects the way that you sing in worship in verse 20. It involves a life of thanksgiving. In verse 21, it's a life of submission to one another. And then he goes on with other examples of a spirit-filled life. In verse 22, wives submit to their husbands. In verse 25, husbands love their wives. In the chapter 6, children obey their parents and servants work hard for their masters and masters treat their servants kindly. None of those things can be successfully accomplished without being filled with the Spirit. You cannot live a God-honoring life in any area of your life unless you live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Fifth, being filled with the Spirit is not a one-time event. We could easily translate verse 18 as keep on being filled with the Spirit. Just like in verse 15, you're not called to be wise once, to have one experience where you uh, receive wisdom. In verse 16, you're not to make the best use of your time just one time. In verse 17, you're not to seek God's will only one time. Similarly, in verse 18, being filled with the Spirit is not a one-time special event. Being filled with the Spirit is something you need as a constant activity of your life. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. It is a continual experience. Dwight L. Moody explained it like this when someone once asked him if he considered himself to be filled with the Spirit, he took a moment to think about it and said, yes, but I leak. And what he means is unless you are continually filled with the Spirit, you'll soon find yourself unfilled with the Spirit. It needs to be not just something that you are or something that's happened. It's a continuing thing. Sixth, being filled by the Spirit is a command. But it is not something you can do for yourself. Again, this could be translated, keep on being filled with the Spirit. That's a lot different than keep filling yourself with the Spirit. Right? This is passive. It is something that's done to you, but it's a command because it requires your submitting to being filled. You fulfill this command to be filled with the spirit by submitting yourself to the spirit 's influence, and that is achieved by being obedient to the spirit-inspired word of God. I'm going to want you to see this parallel passage in Colossians three, but before turning there, take a look here at Ephesians five again and refresh your memory in verse eighteen, "Be filled with the spirit in verse nineteen speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. In verse 20, giving thanks to the Lord Jesus. In verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. Right? This is what Paul's saying in this section of Ephesians. I want you to see that so you can see this parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3 because it's almost like Paul wrote them side by side with each other. In Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 16, "...let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father by him. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Right? You see the identical elements there, right? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in your hearts. And you, you see the giving of thanks. You see this transition where he starts to talk about wives and then husbands. So if this is parallel to our text, what, in Paul's mind, is parallel to being filled with the Spirit? Well, you're welcome to flip back and forth between uh, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 if you want to, or grab a second Bible and put them side by side with each other and look at it. But the parallel to the Ephesians phrase, be filled with the Spirit, in Colossians is, "Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. The spirit-filled life is the result of obeying the spirit-inspired scriptures. This confirms what we've already learned throughout other areas of the Bible. We don't expect spirit filling comes as a result of, you know, looking upwards and waiting for the Holy Spirit to just rain down things on us unexpectedly so we get direct revelation and all kinds of ecstatic emotional experiences. The Spirit indwells us and guides us and teaches us and he teaches us using a divine textbook that he himself inspired. So putting your nose into this book and becoming a Bible-saturated Christian is a key to leading a spirit-influenced life. So doesn't this mean that Paul's expectations of a Christian is for them to be so filled with the Word, right? In Colossians, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, let it live in you richly. He expects them to be so filled with the word that by extension they are in that process filled with the Holy Spirit of God. After all, you're indwelled by the Spirit and now He's appealing for you to submit to the guidance of the Spirit by seeking the Spirit's influence through the Spirit-inspired word. Some people would hear that and go, but that doesn't sound extraordinary. Extraordinary. Where's the second blessing? Where's being slain by the Spirit? Where's the big emotional experience? That just sounds like the normal Christian life. Be a student of the Word and do what it says under the guidance of the Spirit. Well, yeah, (laughs) that's what he's saying. That's what he's been saying for a while, back in... Chapter 4, verse 30 in Ephesians, he said, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed into the day of redemption, right? The, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of Christ, the very Spirit of promise. He is, Jesus said, the, the comforter. And when we sin, we cause discomfort to the one who is to be a comfort to us. And if you're saved, you have the Spirit. He is He is in you, and if you live in disobedience, you grieve the Spirit. Instead, Paul says, live in obedience, causing the Spirit to flourish and to fill you. We need that, because while we have the Spirit, you and I leak. We need to be continually filled, continually submitting to the Word, continually living under the influence of the Holy Spirit within us. What Paul says is not any more complicated than that. Get into the Spirit-inspired Word. Learn what it has to say. Be obedient to it. Have the Spirit influence your life and every action of your life. Now, just another word before we let go of Ephesians for today. Maybe it'll give you something to think about and pray about in the coming week before we deal with the rest of Paul's big sentence, hopefully next week, we are likely tempted to comfort ourselves with the knowledge that being filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't look like those weird charismatic abuses of that phrase, right? It doesn't look like jumping over pews or running down, flailing your arms down the aisle, it doesn't sound like barking like a dog or spewing some nonsensical gibberish. Well, that's true. It doesn't look and sound like that. But y'all, it's got to look and sound like something. We have allowed the abuses of what it means to be filled with the Spirit to steal our enthusiasm for worship because, well, you know what, that might feel awkward. Somebody might call me Bapticostal. Why would we allow that to happen? If these are non-optional commands, how offended would you be if some of your fellow church members came to worship reeking of whiskey or beer? Or the song leader drunkenly slurred the words as he tried to lead in the singing of hymns or, or, or the pastor had to get help because he's stumbling to the pulpit because he's plastered you would be offended because all those things are attempting to worship God under the influence of alcohol isn't it equally offensive for you to try to worship without being under the influence of the Holy Spirit isn't that just as much a command here I mean, is it okay if I preach not under the influence of the Spirit or if Larry leads hymns without being filled with the Spirit? Is it okay for you to worship without the motivating guidance of the Holy Spirit or would that just be pretending to worship? When we come here and we sit all, you know, quietly without opening our mouths and our arms crossed during song service or we refuse to actively participate in worship when what we call worship could easily be mistaken for taking a nap with your eyes open that's not a sign of spirit-filled self-control that's more a sign of what we're missing than what it is that we have When we get through the rest of this sentence, Paul's going to tell us clearly that being filled with the Spirit is going to be exhibited in enthusiastic participation in worship. Not silly, nonsensical, ecstatic participation in worship. That's not worship. But it is going to be enthusiastic and it's going to be participation. The Christians in Ephesus, as well as Christians today, Paul says they need to live under the influence. Not under the influence of alcohol, but under the influence of being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So I'd encourage you to read the rest of Paul's sentence down through verse 21 this week and ask yourself what it would look like if you worshipped filled with the Spirit.